0: True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The darkness is stifling. The night breeze is chilly on her bare legs. But it's not that that's causing the goosebumps that spread across her flesh as she sees the car. She knows that car. She knows the man inside it, as he unfolds his large frame from the interior. The goosebumps turn to a heavy feeling in her gut. He's here for her, and there's no escape. This is true crime, South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode one hundred and fifteen, the murder of Nokupila. Kumalo This episode is sponsored by Just Wellness. Our bodies are incredible machines, and just like any other machine, by understanding how they work, we can get the most out of them and keep them functioning at optimal capacity for longer. When we take medicine or supplements orally, so swallowing them with water, which is the most common way, they go down into our stomach, get broken down in the digestive process, and then eventually, most but not all of it, will enter our bloodstream. It's kind of like filling your car with a petrol pump that has a hole in the pipe. Not terribly efficient. Just wellness's range of tinctures are designed to be taken sublingually, under the tongue. So rather than going the indirect route, they enter the bloodstream much more directly than any other means. The sublingual route bypasses the first-pass metabolism in your stomach and facilitates rapid absorption into your body through blood vessels. This month, you can head over to your nearest Discam and get Just Wellness's blends at significantly marked down prices. Their flagship product, the olive leaf extract tincture, is marked down by 37 Rand to just 147 Rand 95. And the rest of their blends are marked down to 175 Rand 95. Sounds like it's time to stock up for the winter season on Just Wellness's products at Discam. Thank you to Just Wellness for their support of True Crime South Africa. Since 2019, True Crime South Africa has been telling the stories of the victims of violent crime in South Africa. The podcast is independent. That means no big or even little corporates fund it. And it's the only independent podcast in South Africa that consistently charts in the top 10. Keeping a podcast like this going is time consuming and for the most part it remains a one woman process it's me i'm the one woman and you yes you are the reason the podcast continues to flourish and help bring in tips on missing person and cold cases if you'd like to help keep the show running please consider supporting our sponsors signing up to patreon or paypal follow the show on the socials as the kids say and share it with your fellow partners in crime. You can find our social links and learn more about our sponsors at TrueCrime South Africa forward slash donate. Shout out to this week's Patreon and PayPal superstars. Thank you to Lynn Oroch for your support on Patreon. Patreon supporters get one additional exclusive episode a month, a shout out on the pod and other exclusive contents, including Q&As with me, as and when it's available. It's a minimum of $1 a month. I think you should do it. Please. And thank you. Keba. This week's episode got me thinking about quite a few different things. It got me thinking about how we deal with famous people especially people who create in different art forms when they commit heinous crimes. It also got me thinking again about how the world values lives, often based on things that are so far out of our control, like the job we end up doing, because that's just the hand we got dealt. It got me thinking about shame and how we decide who gets the shame and who doesn't. And often the ones who do are the ones who got dealt the rawest hands to start with. In researching this episode, I used the judgment from the case and one or two media articles I could find. So let's get into episode 115, the murder of Nokupila Kumalo. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Nokupila Kumalo was born in 1990 to her mother, Eva Kumalo. She lived with her aunt and other extended family in Kimberley in the Northern Cape until she was eight years old, and then her aunt sent her to live with her mom in Cape Town, which is where Nokupila would stay. Eva was working as a domestic worker, and she and her daughter lived in Guguletu. Nokupila's aunts said that after the young girl moved to Cape Town, she didn't see Eva or Nokupila for a long time again. This is most likely due to economic reasons, considering how expensive it would be to travel from the Western Cape to the Northern Cape, but it meant that Eva and Nokupila became isolated from their extended family, and other than the occasional phone call, they didn't really know what was happening in their lives. There would also be things that weren't shared on purpose, but that would only come out later. It seems that at some point Nokupila also became quite distant from her mother. She was giving her mom less and less information about her life and eventually she moved out completely telling her mom that she was living with a boyfriend. Sadly we don't have much more information about Nokupila and I'll discuss why this probably is a bit later. One of the ways I present episodes is to detail the two relevant timelines, the victims and the offenders, going back as far as I can. In this case, the offender's timeline goes much further back and is far more detailed than the victim's. That's, of course, not uncommon in many cases, but in this one, it's because the offender was well known. Some would say famous and by the time the two timelines cross, he was pretty well off financially too. Zueletu Mtetwa was born 30 years before Nokupila. Although his childhood and early adult life predominantly spanned the years where apartheid was still firmly in force in South Africa, Zueletu was fortunate enough to have been born into a household with greater financial means than most families in the Durban neighbourhood he grew up in. When he was a child, he enjoyed drawing and painting, but he admitted in an article written about him before his crime that he didn't know anyone else who was an artist, so to him, art just seemed like a pastime for children and not something that could really be a career. When he was 14 or 15, Zwiletu was given a camera as a gift, and he started taking photographs of people in his neighbourhood. He loved it, and it was clear that he was talented. But still, this seemed to him to just be a hobby. And so when he finished school, he started a pre-med programme, because his parents thought he could be a very good doctor. But Zwiletu soon bored with his studies, and one of his professors saw some of his drawings and suggested he switch to studying art instead. Zwilletu was accepted to the Michaelis School of Fine Art at the University of Cape Town in the early 80s. At that time, he was one of only two black students in the program. When he graduated in 1985, Zuletu was awarded a Fulbright Scholarship to the Rochester Institute of Technology, In Rochester, New York. There he achieved a graduate degree in photography. In 1988 he returned to South Africa with his master's degree. Zwoletu found it difficult to earn a living through his art at that time though, so he worked at a department store for a while and gave art lessons for two years until he was hired by the University of Cape Town to teach drawing and photography. He worked at the university for seven years. Zouletu continued with his art on the side until in 1997 he received a major break when some of his work was included in the Second Johannesburg Biennale, a major international art exhibit. His photography style became renowned. He often captured scenes of ordinary South Africans in their homes or on the streets going about their daily business. After his first exhibition, the world pretty much became Zwoletsu's oyster. He became a full-time artist, swapping between working on his own projects and commissions for people and organisations all over the world. His work was internationally renowned, with the Jack Shainman Gallery in New York becoming the primary outlet for those wanting to purchase his pieces. Around the time that Zuletu was getting his first big break, an eight-year-old Nokupila Kumalo was being transported from Kimberley to Cape Town to live with her mother. The hand-to-mouth existence that she and her mother Eva lived in Guguletu would have been just the scene that Zuletu often set out to capture. He once told a journalist that he predominantly chose to photograph black people for his work, as part of a journey to better understand himself and his own role in the world. He also said that he specifically sought out those who were marginalized to photograph because they are the subjects the world needs to see. Also around the time that he got his big break, Zwiletu fathered a daughter. There's no information available about his relationships or whether he was married to the mother of the child But he did seem to continue a relationship with the child, and even after she and her mother moved to the UK, he seems to have continued to support her financially as well. His international fame and recognition brought Zwiletsu significant financial gain over the years. He would eventually purchase a home in an exclusive estate in Devil's Peak, a sub-suburb of Freerahook in the Cape Town City Bowl. The area is set against a mountainous backdrop, and relatively small but opulently finished homes there are sold for multiple millions of rands. Zoueletu also enjoyed his accumulated wealth in other ways. It would later come to light that despite being in a relationship with a woman from 2003, Zoueletu spent a lot of time in establishments like the Grand, that catered for exotic dance and interactions with women. His ability to lay down pretty large chunks of change made him very popular at these establishments and one of the managers would later testify that Zwilletu was a well-known face at many of them. The man was also well-known for drinking beyond moderation and the manager recalled many occasions on which he'd have to drive the man's vehicle home for him at closing time. Cars were another thing that Zuletsu seemed to enjoy spending his money on. Zuletsu is believed to have owned several high end vehicles, and in December 2012, he walked into a Porsche dealership and took delivery of his latest acquisition. In the months before that, he'd been dealing with the dealership's principal, Ruhan Steinfart, to place a custom order for a Porsche Carrera 911. Steinfart would later say that Zouletu had been very particular about what he wanted and he ended up choosing customizations that would set his car apart from all others in the Western Cape. It was not just the only black Porsche of that model sold in Cape Town at the time but it was also the only Porsche with black wheels. Today a vehicle like this would cost more than two million rand. It's difficult to know what it would have cost back in 2012, but it would undoubtedly have been over the 1 million rand mark. There were details of the transaction that Steinfart would not even give to police when it came to it. He cited the confidentiality needs of his elite customer group and said that he would only provide information that was pertinent to the case. So details like how Zwiletu had paid for the vehicle, for instance, and documentation he'd submitted for the sale, Steinfart said would need to be seized under warrant if necessary, and they never were, because they weren't needed. Whilst Zwiletu was enjoying the fruits of his artistic labours in Devil's Peak, he would often visit Guguletu too. He seemed to particularly enjoy visiting the corner lounge tavern there, but his life was far removed from the people who lived in the surrounding area, and especially one young lady, Nokupila Kumalo. By 2012, when Zuletu was receiving his expensive foreign car, Nokupila was keeping a secret from her family. After many attempts to find work, She'd started working in the sex trade to make ends meet. It's not uncommon for the clients of individuals working in the sex trade to latch on to one particular sex worker and specifically request their services or almost form a type of relationship with that sex worker. We don't know if this is what the case was between Zuletu and Nokupila. In fact, there's no direct link that would ever be made public between the two which indicated that they'd known each other to any extent. But as we'll discuss, there would also be significant opportunity for any evidence of a pre-existing relationship to be destroyed before any investigation in this case ever really started. What we do know is that Willetu did regularly engage the services of exotic dancers, so it would not have been an enormous stretch to believe he also regularly engaged the services of other participants in the sex industry. Now there's something really interesting I came across when researching this case. We often have this idea that people become involved in the sex trade because they're living with substance use disorders and need to fund their habits. But that doesn't really seem to hold much truth. Certainly when individuals are already involved in the sex trade Drugs will often become an issue then, which only serves to increase the vicious circle they find themselves in. But when I was wondering whether Norcupila had perhaps had a substance use issue, the stats I found made me think again. According to a report by the Sex Workers Education and Advocacy Task Force, or SWET, in the period between twenty eighteen and twenty nineteen, of the 118 sex workers who died during that time, less than 3% of those deaths were as a result of drug use. A massive 55% of those deaths were murder. Now to be clear, it really doesn't matter if Norkupila was living with a substance use disorder or not, and I've found no evidence that she was. But small details like this do add to our understanding of the entire journey of the victims whose stories we're here to witness, and if nothing else, that murder stat is horrifying. And sadly, Nokupila was about to become part of it. Nokupila did not work for an escort agency. She preferred to work on her own. Although it was more dangerous she was able to keep more of her money for herself and her mother. She'd chosen Woodstock as the place she did business out of. It was far enough away from Guguletsu that her mother wouldn't have to cross paths with anyone who knew Nokupila from the trade, and the streets of Woodstock were a well-known place for sex transactions to take place. The most popular place for those in the sex trade in Woodstock is Victoria Road. The road is one of the main streets in the area and is well lit at night. This is not just useful for clients to find the sex workers they're seeking, but also for sex workers to remain safer and avoid muggings or any of the other multiple dangers associated with street work. Other streets around the area are darker and more dangerous, and perhaps better for taking pre-arranged meetings or for taking clients who don't have vehicles. It was to one of those darker roads in Woodstock, Craig Road, outside the Tollgate Industrial Centre, that Constable Asanda Shasha was called at 3.50am on Sunday the 14th of April 2013. A passerby had found a body near the road. The young female was badly beaten and although paramedics were called, she was far beyond saving. The woman was clothed, and although there was no blood on her clothing, her face was very bruised and swollen. As the officer proceeded to cordon off the scene and call his superiors out to start an unnatural death investigation, a security guard from a nearby building approached him. Morgan Dava had been on duty that night with another colleague in the security booth of the industrial tollgate building. Just before 3am he said that he and his colleague had heard noises coming from outside the gate which sounded like a fight. They went to stand at the gate and saw a dark colored car parked in the road. The vehicle was parked directly outside another building called the stockyard. Morgan could not see the individuals he assumed were fighting from where he stood, but instinctively noted down the registration number of the vehicle he could make out. He recorded the number 9112, but would later say he'd been unable to see from his vantage point whether the province designation on the plate was MP or WP. As he and his colleagues stood watching, He noticed a black male walk toward the vehicle, get in and drive off. After that, there'd been no more noise. But Morgan had, in any case, reported the incident to his supervisor. At that point, there'd been no reason for them to alert police. They could not see the place where they assumed the fight had taken place from where they were, and it was only later on that they heard a man calling out for someone to call an ambulance. This had been the man who'd found the victim's body. Morgan handed the piece of paper with the registration number over to Constable Shasha, who was awaiting the arrival of one Captain Orenser, who would officially start the investigation. He also then mentioned something that would become of ultimate importance in this case. The Tollgate building, as well as the Stockyard building, had CCTV cameras, It was entirely possible that whatever had led to the death of the young woman had been caught on camera. When Captain Orenser arrived on the scene, he realised that the victim was unidentified. Although she had a handbag with her, there was no form of identity in it. He did, however, immediately suspect that the young woman was one of Woodstock's sex workers. Now, although police all over the world are famously known for not always giving their best efforts in crimes against sex workers, and in the Sweat report I read, they too acknowledge that the vast majority of murders against sex workers remain unsolved, I can't really fault much of the police's investigation in this case. There would later be delays and incidents that were clearly disrespectful to the victim, which we'll get into But considering how some murder investigations simply drift off into Neverland in this country, looking at the timeline of this investigation, the police did their jobs for the most part. The day after the victim's body was found, an autopsy was conducted, during which fingerprints were taken and ran first through the arrested offender's database. This was done because police suspected that the victim was a sex worker, and as such thought that perhaps she may have been arrested on some charge at some point. While they awaited this result, Dr. Linda Liebenberg, the forensic pathologist, completed the autopsy, and her findings were grim. The victim's main cause of death was massive laceration of the liver. In essence, her liver had been broken in two, by means of external blunt force trauma. The rest of the body also presented with massive blunt force injuries, including bruising and fractures. Dr Liebenberg noted that the victim also had several post-mortem injuries, blunt force trauma that she'd incurred after her heart had stopped pumping blood. The main cause of death was determined to be the splitting of the victim's liver from some type of blunt force trauma. When the liver split, it had caused immediate and irreparable internal bleeding leading to a cardiac arrest as the heart struggled to keep up with the blood supply, which had ended the victim's life. The pathologist determined that this would likely have happened quite early on in the attack, and this accounted for the multiple post-mortem injuries, as the attacker would likely not have realized that the victim had already died. At this point, the victim remained unidentified, and although witness testimony from the guards and the type of injuries they were seeing on the victim strongly indicated that this had been the case of a woman having been beaten to death, would be the CCTV footage, that would place the missing puzzle pieces together. In the days after the crime, police visited the offices of the security company that had installed and managed the CCTV system for both Tollgate and Stockyard. Constable Basson, a video analyst with the SAPS, downloaded the videos and set about viewing them. The following is what he witnessed. At 2.47am, a, a dark-coloured vehicle pulled into Craig Road and parked next to the curb. A male figure exited the car and walked purposefully to the opposite side of the road. He is seen disappearing from the view to the left of the screen. For 23 seconds, no one is on screen, but then a woman who would be identified as the victim in the case stumbles into view. She's followed by the male, who proceeds to push, slap and punch the woman until she falls to the ground. A vicious attack follows by the male, during which he stomps on the woman, kicks her and jumps on her body. At one point, a third person appears on screen, a woman. The female kicks the now motionless victim on the ground a few times as well. From 2.48am, the victim on the ground no longer moves. The attack was brief, but incredibly violent. Then, the male walks quickly away from the body, and the female follows. She briefly seems to engage with the man who doesn't waste any time with her, but continues back to his vehicle, gets in, and drives off. The female perpetrator Disappears into the darkness, and the victim on the ground remains motionless. The times line up perfectly was when the security guards reported hearing what they thought was a fight. After this, the only person seen on screen again before the body is discovered is a passerby who appears drunk and doesn't seem to notice the woman lying on the pavement as he stumbles straight past her. Constable Basson watches right up until the police arrive on the scene and nothing else of value is gained from the CCTV. The footage was unfortunately not great quality, as most systems aren't. Basson was able to pull stills from the footage, but facial features of the attacker could not be seen clearly and neither could the license plate on the vehicle. It seemed very clear to the officers from the information they had so far and the shape of the vehicle that it was a Porsche though. The car was dark and so were the wheels. With the partial registration number provided by the security guard and the image of the vehicle, police were now able to search for the owner of a likely black Porsche. Thankfully, there were very few Porsches registered in the Western Cape, and only one in a dark colour that they believed was black, as seen on the CCTV. The owner was one Zwiletu Ntetwa. On the 20th of April, Eva Kumalo received a visit from Woodstock police officers. When the victim's fingerprints had been run through the arrested offender's database, a record for loitering, and being in possession of suspected stolen goods was returned. The record belonged to 23-year-old Nokupila Kumalo. The only photograph of Nokupila that police would ever have available to them was her mugshot. But it was not the mugshot that they took to her mother, Eva, on the 20th of April, when she discovered that her daughter had been murdered six days before. Eva would later tell journalists that she'd been asked to look at photographs of her daughter's battered face. Of course, this is something that sadly often family members have to deal with as identification is necessary, but I cannot imagine what that moment must have been like for Eva. She'd had no idea anything was wrong. Nokupila often went off the map for days at a time, And then she'd come visit, give her mom some money, maybe buy her some groceries, and then she'd be gone again. So when six days had gone by and she hadn't heard from her daughter, Eva wasn't overly alarmed. But then the police showed up and told her she'd never receive a visit from her daughter again. It's very likely that unless some of the investigating team were art fundies, when they saw the names Willetu Mtetwa, they would not have known who he was. Of course, the car he drove and the address he lived at in Freerahook gave them a the clue that he was a wealthy man. But when they arrived at that exclusive address to question Tetwa, they found that he was not there. His black Porsche Carrera 911 with personalized number plate 9112WP was there, though. On calling Mtetwa, they discovered that the man had left the country. He was in the United States, he said, on business. Several galleries there carried his work, and he regularly visited the country to make appearances and attend to gallery business there. Mtetwa told police that he would be returning on the 5th of May, and no, he would not be cutting his trip short, because he knew nothing about what they were referring to. Police's hands were essentially tied. Getting a repatriation warrant would take a significant amount of time and expense, and Mtetwa wasn't refusing to come back. He was just saying he'd do it in his own good time so police decided to wait for the 5th of May. And if he didn't return, they warned him they would make sure he had no choice. Records would later show that as soon as Mtetwa ended that call with police, he made another call to renowned criminal defence attorney William Booth. Booth is well known for defending some of the most high-profile Cape Town criminal defendants often in relation to organised crime. Mtetwa retained Booth's services that day, and soon the investigating officer was contacted by Booth and informed that all future communications with Mtetwa should come through him. When I was researching this case, I discovered that Mtetwa had left the country soon after the crime was committed, and my first thought was that it would have been pretty easy for him to just keep on going and not come back to South Africa to face justice. In reality, though, that would actually not have been that easy. His visa would have soon expired, and he would have had to leave America. Certainly, he could have just carried on traveling to other countries, but his accounts would likely have been frozen, and then he probably would have been stuck. He was a wealthy man but it seemed most of his assets were in South Africa and he wasn't perhaps stay on the lamb internationally indefinitely wealthy. The other side of that is by fleeing he would have essentially been admitting guilt and I tend to think he believed he had a pretty good chance of being found not guilty of this crime. So As arranged, on the 5th of May 2013, Zwiletu Mtetwa did arrive back in South Africa. Unwilling to take any chances, the investigating officer was at international arrivals when Mtetwa came through the gates, as was his lawyer, William Booth, who stood with his client as handcuffs were snapped onto his wrists and he was placed under arrest for the murder of Nokupila Kumalo. Although I've mentioned that from what I can see, I felt police did a pretty decent job in this case, one thing does stand out to me. Although they had every right to seize Mtetwa's Porsche, despite him not being in the country, police didn't do this until he arrived back. I don't know why this is, and perhaps it didn't really matter, because no one had access to the vehicle during this time. I can guess and say perhaps police were worried about damaging a very expensive vehicle by seizing it without Ntetwa being present, and really, any cleaning up of evidence that could have been done would have already been done by the time Ntetwa left the country. It's unlikely he wouldn't have attended to that if there was anything to attend to before leaving. When Mtetwa was questioned, he simply told police he didn't remember anything about the night in question, and that was where William Booth ended questioning of his client. The tracking device in the Porsche, though, would provide significant evidence about Mtetwa's movements on the evening of the 13th into the early hours of the 14th. After submitting a Section 205 subpoena to the car tracking device company, Police were given records of every time the vehicle's engine started up, switched off, and the GPS location of where the car was when that happened. On the evening of Saturday the 13th of April 2013, Ntetwa had been at a tavern he frequented in Guguletu called the Corner Lounge. His car had been driven back to his home address in Freerahook, where it remained for an hour and eight minutes, and then it had left again. At 2.48am, the vehicle's engine was switched off in Ravenscraig Road, Woodstock. It remained there for seven minutes, until 2.55am when it started up again, and headed back to his house in Freerderhoek. These times and locations, of course, matched up perfectly with the CCTV footage of the vehicle stopping in Ravenscraig Road, the duration of the attack on Nokupila Kumalo, and the time the attacker captured on CCTV left the scene. When forensic testing was completed on Mtetwa's Porsche, nothing of value was found. The crime had not been particularly bloody, and from the CCTV footage, there wasn't much one on one physical contact between the attacker and Nokupila. Considering the way the attacker had kicked and stomped Nokopila, there was always the possibility that there would be DNA carried on the attacker's shoes. But the shoes Mtetwa was wearing that night could never be identified, and the footwell and pedals of his vehicle bore no trace of usable DNA. Perhaps most significantly though, police were unable to find any other fingerprints inside the vehicle except Mtetwa's. And this would become important later. William Booth was able to push for a fast bail hearing for his client. And on the 6th of May, after being held in custody for less than 24 hours, Mtetwa was released on 100,000 Rand bail. This was the first time that news of Mtetwa's arrest started to hit the headlines, and the art community was horrified. In this bail hearing, although Nokopila had already been identified, she was referred to simply as a sex worker, and not by name. I don't want to jump to conclusions here, and assume that this was because no one in court that day cared about her name. Because the possibility does exist that the prosecutor wants to first talk to her family about the sex work issue, and the fact that it was going to be in the press. Really though, at that first bail hearing, it should have made no difference at all what the victim did to earn money. Certainly the fact that Nokupila was a sex worker would come out in the trial because it was pertinent to the location of the murder and the connection between her and her killer. But unless the defence was attempting to use Nokupila's occupation as a way to minimise the crime, I really can't see the relevance at the bail hearing point. It would really only be after Sweat and several other advocacy agencies became involved that the media and the court actually started using her name regularly rather than referring to her as the sex worker. While Mtetwa waited for his trial to start the art world reacted to one of their own being accused of a pretty horrendous act. Most who were contacted by journalists simply said that their colleague had assured them of his innocence and they said they were sure the truth would come out in court. Many journalists wanted to find out whether Tetwa had any history of violence toward women. The woman he'd been in a relationship with for more than 10 years described him as kind and generous and said that quote, "to me he is not capable of doing something like this these Willetu i know would never lay a hand on a man let alone a woman" end quote. others though speaking on condition of anonymity said that ntetwa did have a history of violence towards women and described him as being a very difficult person We often see conflicting narratives about defendants like this though, and that's because no individual is seen the same way by everyone. Even the kindest and most gentle person will have someone out there who's experienced them in a negative way, and by the same token some of the most violent people will also have those who say great things about them. So This type of reported history is really quite meaningless. What would be meaningful is a criminal record, a legal record of incidents involving violence against women. But Ntetwa didn't have that. But again, that doesn't mean he'd never been violent toward women either. Although it shouldn't be. Zwiletum Tetwa's fame and beloved status in the art community as an ambassador in the arts for South Africa is highly pertinent here. We've seen many well-known individuals across the world convicted recently for sex crimes and instances of violence which have been uncovered after decades. For the most part, the reason these cases are not reported when they happen is because of who the perpetrator is. Although we might not like to believe it, wealth and fame do buy you a measure of protection. Victims of especially wealthy and famous men will feel even more so than other sexual and other abuse survivors that they will not be believed. When a person is elevated to hero status in the public eye, no one will want to believe that they are also a predator. And often the public will assume that the victim is just trying to get public attention themselves or secure a payout from a wealthy man. We've seen these dynamics play out time and time again in these cases. And sadly, I don't see an end to the victim blaming or the sheltering of these famous predators anytime soon. And I have to wonder if this isn't perhaps what could have happened in this case too. Obviously I have no proof of this, and probably never will unless victims come forward, but Ntetwa was well-loved for his contributions to the art world, and I wouldn't be surprised if victims felt like they couldn't stand up in court to that persona, or the wealth he'd back up a case with. I was listening to a podcast called Navigating Narcissism, which brought up another very interesting dynamic which I hadn't considered. The woman being interviewed on the podcast was a survivor of Bill Cosby's sex crimes. Cosby is, of course, an internationally famous actor and comedian who was found guilty of sex crimes against women and continues to face additional cases of the same nature. More than 60 women have come forward to say that they were raped by Cosby during the period between 1965 and 2008. Now the woman being interviewed on the podcast I listened to raised a really important point. Bill Cosby is of course a black man and the victim being interviewed was also black. This woman did not just face the usual victim-blaming and shaming that many other victims also experienced. For her, there was an added dimension, where she was ridiculed and shamed by the black community for bringing a black man who had contributed so significantly to the growth of acting and comedy in black communities into disrepute. While this may seem completely ridiculous to people in communities where representation is not an issue, for people of colour and other marginalised people who have historically struggled to have their talent recognised and celebrated because of the colour of their skins, this is a real issue. Men and women of colour who manage to break through these barriers are held in high regard in their communities. And so they will not only have the power of wealth and fame behind them, but added to that, an almost hero of the people status. When I heard the survivor mention this, I wondered how much that happens in South Africa too. I am, of course, a white female, and while I'm intimately familiar with the power that a wealthy white man would hold, I would never be told not to report a crime committed against me because I would simultaneously be harming the progress my race has made. But are women of colour in South Africa who are abused by famous men of colour facing this challenge? Are they being forced into silence with this added layer of shame that most of us would not even think about? Are there victims of Mtetwa out there who felt the same way? It's something to think about. While the police investigation was acceptably carried out, the justice system end of this case would leave a lot to be desired. The trial against Waletu Mtetwa started in late 2013. It would only be concluded in 2017 four years after Nokupila was murdered. A murder trial lasting a year is not uncommon in South Africa, especially in cases with complex evidence. But the evidence in this case was not particularly complex, although the defence would do their best to make it so. And to be fair to the defence, the delays didn't actually seem to be their fault. For the most part and I stand to be corrected, it just seemed like there wasn't very much rush to get to finality. Really, only when Sweat and several other sex worker advocacy organisations started to campaign outside the court, did things really seem to speed up. You can decide for yourself why that might have been the case. As the evidence against Willetu Tetwa unfolded, It became clear that the man's defense was going to simply be, I don't recall committing this murder, and even if you can prove my car was there, I wasn't necessarily in it. The CCTV evidence of course was some of the most important. It showed the judge how absolutely horrific the crime was, and although the footage was not good enough to zoom in and actually see the perpetrator's face, The prosecution had a few interesting tricks up their sleeve in the hopes of proving that the man caught on camera was indeed Mtetwa. First up was proving that the vehicle was his Porsche. The tracker evidence assisted with this of course and the police had also done their own GPS investigation by going to all of the scenes relevant to the case and taking GPS coordinates there and then going back to the tracker report and comparing the two to ensure that what the tracker report said was Ravenscraig Road for instance was indeed the scene of the murder. This would be important because the defense would attempt to claim that the tracker was too inaccurate to be used as evidence but the police's comparison investigation disproved that theory. In addition to the tracker data, The prosecution also called Ruhan Steinfart, the principal at the Porsche dealership. He testified that the vehicle on the CCTV footage was indeed the same Porsche he had sold to Zwiletu Mtetwa. First, he pointed out features on the car that helped him to identify the make and model. And then he narrowed it down to the features that Mtetwa had in particular requested for his vehicle. When it was the defense's turn, they would also present their own Porsche expert of sorts, a man who had bought and sold second-hand Porsches as a pastime for 30 years. Unfortunately, the witness added nothing to the defence's case, as he actually confirmed that it was indeed a Porsche Carrera 911, which was dark in color with dark-colored wheels. But he said he couldn't say what color the wheels were. Stainfart, of course, had already testified that he'd only ever brought in one Porsche Carrera 911 in a dark color with dark wheels into the Western Cape. And that was the one he'd sold to Mtetwa. With Mtetwa's car having been placed at the scene through this evidence, the next step was to prove that the man in the car was indeed Mtetwa. He, of course, claimed to have no memory of that night. And in 2016 a psychiatrist took the stand for the defense in an attempt to explain this loss of memory mtetwa had seen the psychiatrist in the hopes that the doctor would testify that there was some pathological reason for the memory loss he claimed to have had that night and if that was not possible that his alcohol consumption could have caused it while the psychiatrist would testify that it is possible in the general sense excessive alcohol consumption to cause memory loss in some people, what are commonly referred to as blackouts, he could not definitively point to a pattern of this happening with Mtetwa, and he certainly couldn't say it had happened on the night of the murder. He also couldn't find any other psychiatric reason why Mtetwa would have suffered amnesia of any kind that night. The defence also attempted to suggest that someone else had been driving the Porsche that night. They did this by presenting a witness who'd worked at two establishments Mtetwa frequented, Shimmy Beach and The Grand. He testified that that there'd been occasions when staff from the clubs had had to drive Mtetwa's vehicle home because the man had had too much to drink. The man did, however, say... That he'd never actually seen anyone drive the porsche only the other vehicles mtetwa owned in all fairness mtetwa had only had the porsche for four months so it's entirely possible he just hadn't used it to go to those establishments in that time significantly though the defense did not call anyone from the corner lounge the tavern in guguletu where mtetwa was that night To confirm whether Mtetwa had been drinking significant amounts or if someone else had driven his car home. The manager from the other two establishments also noted that on the occasion that he or his staff had driven Mtetwa home, they'd never stayed at his home for any amount of time. They dropped the car off and left. But if, as Mtetwa was claiming, someone could have driven his car home from the corner lounge, The tracker information showed that the car was stationary at his home address for more than an hour before it left again. So the mystery driver would have had to have been at his house during that period, which was out of character by his own witnesses' testimony. The CCTV was pulled apart in fine detail by the defence. Their claims included the possibility that the footage had been altered, that the man seen walking from the car to the victim was not the same person seen kicking the victim and then walking back to the car, and also that it was possible, in their opinion, that something had happened to the victim while they were off screen that had actually led to their death, and the punching and kicking hadn't been the cause. To refute the first claim of altered footage, the state brought in several witnesses, both SAPS and external, who were experts in video footage and CCTV recordings. The man who designed the very CCTV system that was used at the tollgate and stockyard buildings also testified, and he said he designed the system to ensure that footage could not be altered, added, or deleted. This was done through a series of digital watermarks on each frame of the recording, which when placed out of order was easy to identify as alteration. He'd assessed the footage used by the SAPS as evidence and confirmed that all of the watermarks were in place and the footage had not been doctored in any way. Another prosecution witness would help to add credence to the theory that this was indeed Mtetwa on the footage. And I must say, I, in a very true crime nerd fashion, found this evidence fascinating. Dr. Nicholas Tam is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Sports Science Institute. His work has involved studying the gait of predominantly athletes, but also ordinary individuals, to determine the similarities and differences in gait. His work, of course, was aimed at identifying gait patterns that were particular to successful athletes in different sports. But he had on occasion also been asked to use this same science in criminal cases to identify the similarities in individuals seen on camera and those in supplied footage. Now, GATE, G-A-I-T, G-A-I-T is defined very simply as an individual's manner of walking. And through his research, Tam and others have found that gait patterns are very specific to an individual's own unique build, energy levels, and even mental factors. Part of his research necessitates that he also analyzes the anthropometric factors of individuals, which is essentially the measurement and proportion of body parts, which for the most part is also pretty unique. By combining these two fields of analysis, Tam was able to say that in his opinion, the man walking from the car to the victim, and the man engaging in the attack were the same person. He then also compared supplied footage of walking in and out of the court building on several different days, to the CCTV footage from the crime. From this comparison, he determined that the man in the crime scene footage had an almost identical gait to that of Mtetwa. Most especially, he said, when the attacker was seen walking from the car to the victim on his arrival. This most closely matched his stride, When he walked in and out of the court building. The gate at the end of the crime scene video is slightly different, Tam explains, because the attacker is in a hurry and he didn't have any footage available of Mtetwa in a similar mindset to compare this portion to. While Tam was understandably not willing to say that the individual in the crime scene footage was most definitely Mtetwa, He said that there were a large number of similarities, and he definitely could not exclude him. Much was made by the defense of the brief number of seconds that the victim and the attacker spent off camera, and the defense suggested that it was possible that someone else who could not be seen had done something fatal to the victim off camera, and that the man involved in the attack was simply guilty of assault. Forensic pathologist Dr Linda Liebenberg had been given the opportunity to view the CCTV footage after she'd finalised her autopsy report for Nokupila Kumalo. She went through the footage frame by frame and was able to point out to the court how and where each of the injuries she'd recorded on the victim had been inflicted. There's one point in the footage where she points out the liver rupture had likely happened. It was a moment where the attacker stomped with his full weight on the slight body of the woman. After this, she moves less and less on the ground until she stops moving entirely. Dr. Liebenberg believes that this was the moment of death and that death had undoubtedly been as a direct result of that stomp, she'd pointed out. In cross-examination, the defense asked Dr. Liebenberg to confirm that it had been a specific type of cardiac arrest that had caused Norkopila's death. Liebenberg confirmed that, yes, the type of cardiac arrest was particular to internal bleeding injuries from blunt force trauma. Booth then asked whether she could be sure that some blow had not happened off camera that had actually resulted in the cardiac arrest. Liebenberg said that she could not exclude this, but it would be highly unlikely as the victim stays on her feet for several seconds after she stumbles on camera and before she collapses. She'd also been able to tie together the post-mortem injuries with the specific kicks She saw on camera after Nokopila stopped moving, which pointed to the stomp to her stomach being the ultimate cause of death, and not something that happened off camera. And if you're wondering, hang on, wasn't there someone else caught on camera? A woman? Well yes, and this was raised in court too. But this woman has never been identified. She appeared to have been with Norkopila when the murderer arrived, and then she slunk off into the night. Her kicks to Norkopila's body were, in comparison to the killer's, almost half-hearted, and according to the pathologist, she did not even find bruising in the two places where the woman had kicked her. This woman's presence remains a mystery, and I'll talk a little bit more about her later. A woman who'd also worked in the sex trade in Woodstock would also testify for the state. She told the court that she'd seen a photograph of Zweletu Tetwa in the offices of Sweat, where they'd had it pinned to a notice board asking witnesses to the crime to come forward. The woman said she'd recognised the man as someone she often saw in Woodstock. He would drive around in his Porsche and sometimes other cars, and always asked for very specific sex workers. She couldn't say whether Mtetwa had ever asked for Nokopila by name, though. Now, although I've discussed both the defense and state witnesses and evidence together here, in court, the state presents its case and then the defense can cross-examine its witnesses and then the state will rest and the defense has the opportunity to present its case and witnesses, which the state can then cross-examine. During the trial, when the state rested its case, the defense made an application to have the case thrown out of court. Booth cited Section 174 of the Criminal Procedure Act 51 of 1977, which, quote, encompasses the right of an accused to be discharged from the offense he's allegedly committed where at the close of the state's case, there is no evidence on which the court may draw the accused to the charge, end quote. Essentially Booth was saying that, well clearly the state has no real evidence here, can we get this discharge please? But the judge disagreed and declined the application, forcing the defense to present their case. Ntetwa chose not to testify in his own defence. And although this is his right, it's also something we regularly see judges frowning upon, especially when there are many unanswered questions. Of course, Zwiletu Tetwa was claiming he couldn't remember anything about that night, so there was nothing for him to testify about. And after calling the witnesses I've mentioned, they rested their case. After four long years, judgment was finally handed down on the 16th of March 2017. The judge found that the state had proven its case and found Zwiletum Tetua guilty of murder. She said, quote, It is trite that the state must prove its case beyond reasonable doubt against the accused. Proof beyond reasonable doubt does not mean proof beyond the shadow of a doubt. Our law does not require that a court should only act on absolute certainty, but rather on justifiable and reasonable convictions founded upon just and reasonable grounds." End quote. She also said, quote, "The court made its own assessments of the CCTV footage and concludes that the similarities between the assailants and the accused are remarkable." Considering the similarities between the two on the probabilities the only reasonable inference to draw is that the accused was the driver of his vehicle at the time of the incident." End quote. Of the remarkable existence of CCTV footage of the entire crime which undoubtedly secured the case, the judge said, quote, "The silent witness observed a continuous horrific attack on the victim who was lying motionless during most of the attack. The victim was a petite young lady weighing merely 46 kilograms. There was no resistance and the accused could have terminated the attack at any time. Yet the visuals clearly show that the accused continued to aggressively inflict excessive blunt force trauma to a lifeless body. The intermittent pauses between the phases of the attack and the attacker's handling of the body creates a strong suspicion that the accused had the direct intention to kill the victim, End quote. Immediately following the passing down of judgment, William Booth asked the judge for permission to apply for bail for his client. Zwiletu Mtetwa had been on bail for four years during his trial but this bail is automatically ended when a guilty verdict is handed down if there is the possibility of prison time at hand, and of course in this case there was. It was reason for wanting bail was that he wanted to get his affairs in order, he said. He needed to ensure that there was money available for his daughter's education should he be sentenced to significant prison time and he also wanted to be the one to explain to his daughter that he'd been found guilty and would probably be going to prison. The judge, however, told Mtetwa that he'd had four years to prepare his daughter and his affairs for the possibility that he'd be found guilty and she would not be granting him additional bail. He was taken into custody to await sentencing. Unfortunately, I don't have much information regarding the aggravating and mitigating circumstances presented in this case. I do know that the defense had a social worker testify that giving Mtetwa prison time would not serve the community and that he should rather be given a non-custodial sentence. Although the judge did not agree with this and she did end up giving Mtetwa prison time, she sentenced him on the basis that although the murder had not been proven to have been premeditated, he must have known that his actions could, and likely would, lead to the death of the victim. Zweletu Mtetwa was sentenced to 18 years in prison. He will be eligible for parole in 2029 and is currently incarcerated in Polsmoor Prison. While Ntetwa's trial was ongoing and after his conviction, several artists made calls for his most prominent pieces to be removed from the National Gallery and to be replaced with a painting created by Astrid Warren. The piece was commissioned by Sweat and is based on Norcupila Kamalo's mugshot, one of the only photographs of her that exists. The curators of the gallery declined to remove any of Tetwa's work. This would be the general feeling of galleries across the globe that held Tetwa's pieces. Some would go on to move his pieces to a less visible section of their galleries, and his primary gallery in New York moved his name from their main artists list to a separate, less conspicuous list, but none seem to have completely removed it from circulation. If you're on the show's social media pages, you would have seen me posing this question this week. If an artist is found guilty of a crime like this, should their art be removed from circulation? The overwhelming majority of you said that it should be situation dependent. If the piece is directly linked to a victim, for instance, some said, those pieces should be removed. Many feel that it's possible to separate the artist and their deeds from the art. And I think this is a minefield question really, because at the end of the day, we can't erase someone's existence based on a crime they committed. As much as we may despise the crime, and perhaps the criminal for committing it, that art still exists. It may have existed before they committed the crime, and in some cases, artists only become famous after they've committed crimes and served their time for it, and not as a result of their crime, which only comes out later. I thought it was an interesting point of discussion, and of course the only legal question would come in if a victim or victim's family decided to make a civil claim against an offender for their earnings from their art. Other than that, it's all up to each individual whether they choose to consume art from these individuals or not. And to be honest, some of the other artists with criminal records that came up in these discussions, I didn't even know had committed sex crimes or murders. I would have liked to have seen the piece by Astrid Warren replace the piece by Mtetwa in the National Gallery, though. Because I think that one move would have spoken volumes about how one human being doesn't hold greater value over another, regardless of their status, occupation, gender, race, or level of wealth. But it was not to be. And perhaps that says just as much about the truth of our society. There are bits and pieces in this case that stood out for me and that still bother me, and I wanted to discuss these for clarity. The first is the motive for this crime, which has never been established or discussed really. To be clear, it's definitely not uncommon for clients of sex workers to randomly attack them for no reason at all. Many sex workers, for instance, die after being pushed out of moving cars, simply because the client doesn't want to pay for the service they've already received. But the situation with Mtetwa and Nokupila is different. They didn't have a sexual transaction that night, and Ntetwa seemed to know exactly where Nokupila was, almost like the meeting was arranged. Nothing of substance was found in Ntetwa's phone records in terms of communication with Nokupila or anyone who may have known her, but Ntetwa did also have 21 days from the crime to clear his phone. Most people who work the Woodstock area say that sex workers wouldn't generally use Ravenscraig Road because it's too dark. So why was Nokopila there? Was the mystery woman the key? Had she lured Nokopila there? The woman's actions during the attack almost speak to someone who doesn't really want to be involved, but also doesn't really want to look like she could be a snitch either. Her half-hearted kicks to Norkopila's body suggest that she may have been trying to convince M'tetwa that she was on his side, so to speak, so that he didn't hurt her. And she spoke to him briefly afterwards, although we'll never know what was said. I find it hard to believe that if the woman was not somehow in on whatever happened that night, that she could be so easily convinced to participate. And not shout for help or try and run away really we don't even know for sure that mtetwa knew nokopila before that night there does seem to be a suggestion that he'd been in woodstock before that to engage with sex workers so it's entirely possible they'd had exchanges before i would love to know if police went further back in mtetwa's tracker records to see if his vehicle regularly showed up in, in Woodstock at night. I will say that, that the Guguletu connection interests me. Mtetwa was in Guguletu before he killed Nokupila. Nokopila's mother lived in Guguletu too. The level of violence in the attack, to me at least, suggests significant anger. So... I can't help but wonder if while Mtetwa was in Guguletu, someone said something to him. Maybe Nokopila had been talking about her clients to people there. Maybe she'd mentioned his name. And maybe he didn't like that very much. Is it possible that he'd gone home fuming at the betrayal, contacted another sex worker he perhaps knew in the area, and asked her to lure Naukepila to a specific place. Or is it possible that he was just out on the prowl, and decided that instead of paying for sex that night, he felt like releasing his pent-up frustrations in another way? I don't know. It just feels too random. I can't help but lean toward this having been, to some extent, premeditated and planned. And really, it's the seeming lack of premeditation that got him the lesser sentence. So although I know it would have been difficult to prove, I'm a little disappointed that this aspect was not further probed. Unless it was, and no evidence could be found to prove it. I guess we'll never know. I chatted quite a bit about the responsibility spread between sex worker and client when I covered the murder of Siam Lee in episode 100. But at that time, I didn't know this little, well, not so little, piece of information. According to a report published by the Global Network of Sex Work Projects, the laws regulating sex work in South Africa were created in 1957 under the apartheid government. That law criminalized sex workers and third parties, such as those running establishments in which sex work is practiced. But it did not necessarily criminalize the procurements of sex work. Only in 2007, yes, 2007, was the law amended to also include the criminalization of clients. It took us 50 years To legally recognize that a transaction generally works with both a seller and a buyer? Today we are closer to decriminalizing sex work in this country than we've ever been. And regardless of anyone's personal feelings about this, it's an important step to protecting the lives of women and men who work in the sex trade. That is what it's about. By literally pulling these workers out of the shadows, at least in legal terms, it's far easier to protect them, and for them to protect themselves. If clients with dubious intentions know that these women are protected by law, just like everyone else, perhaps they will be less likely to simply do whatever they want. Soon, sex work may be decriminalised, but the stigma will take a long time to fade. And for Nokupila Kumalo, it will still be too late. I'm in two minds about whether justice was really done for Nokupila. Yes, the police and the prosecution team did a good job of investigating and prosecuting. But I can't help but wonder what would have happened if this case hadn't become public. If her killer, hadn't pulled up in a Porsche, if sex work advocacy organisations hadn't started demonstrating in front of the court to force the trial process to stop being delayed. Worse still, what would have happened if that silent witness, as the judge called it, the CCTV camera, hadn't captured the events of that night? Well then, most certainly, Nokupila would never have gotten justice. There would have been no way to link Zwile to Umtetwa to that crime. And I'm pretty sure that's what he was banking on. When Umtetwa walked away from punching, kicking and stomping Nokupila to death that night, he didn't think he was going to get caught. He didn't think anyone would care. Because he was who he was. And she was who she was. And perhaps, in his world, that's how things worked. Nokupila was just 23 years old when she was murdered. We have no idea why she got into the sex trade, and honestly, it doesn't matter. Not to me, at least. If I think back to when I was 23, my breath catches in my throat at the thought of how much life I've lived since then. The Nokupila who was huddled in the dark Woodstock Road that night was just a snapshot in time. That was 23-year-old Nokupila. Who knows who 24-year-old Nokupila might have been, or 30-year-old, or 40-year-old she was just eight years older than her killer's daughter and that's something I'll never understand how does someone like Mtetwa look at a young woman so close to his own daughter's age and not feel anything when landing that first punch and then a kick and then a stomp how do you walk away from that crumpled heap of humanity on the floor and feel good about what you did Yet another thing maybe I'm glad I probably won't ever understand. Nokupila did eventually go home to Kimberley, to the northern Cape Town she'd grown up in and never seen again. She went back there to be buried. Her aunt there, who'd raised her until the age of eight, watched a child leave and the body of a young woman return. A body broken by someone who, despite spending his entire life claiming to want to capture and memorialize the marginalized in his art, ended up becoming the one who only intensified that marginalization. Ntetwa said he photographed others to learn about himself, and It's perhaps a sad irony that it would be images captured by a camera he didn't know was there that would probably tell him more than he'd ever be willing to admit about himself. Nokupila Kumalo, rest gently. Thank you for listening to episode 115, The Murder of Nokupila Kumalo. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on Spotify or the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook Twitter and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon.